Who is God? What's wrong with the world? What hope do we have? These are the kinds of questions that every human being must face. And thankfully, God has not left us wondering about the answers. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can watch today's sermon plus browse thousands of more free resources over at our website, Radical.net. In today's sermon from Genesis chapters 1 through 11, David Platt shows us how God's Word and answers life's foundational questions in the Bible's opening chapters. We'll also be urged to think through how these truths should affect our lives as we memorize and meditate on, apply, pray, and share them. So here's David Platt with a sermon titled, The Story of Scripture and the Questions of Life, in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We got a lot of ground to cover in the Word today as we prepare to start Bible reading plan together tomorrow. So if you're new to NBC or if you missed the last few weeks, we've been looking forward to today as the start of a journey through the Bible together. Hopefully you have received one of these Bible reading plans. If not, they're available in the lobby at every campus. Uh, What this represents is a journey through the story of Scripture over the next 10 months, so from now until the end of November, during which we're going to walk chronologically through the Bible together. We've talked about how many people know, have read parts of the Bible here and there, but have never read straight through the story of Scripture, seen how it all fits together. So I want to invite everybody who's within the sound of my voice right now to join us on this journey. Even if you're not a Christian, you're exploring Christianity. Like this is the best-selling book in the history of the world. Surely it'd be at least worth reading once, getting a picture of one time. I trust we know February is Black History Month, and I was thinking about one of my favorite quotes from Francis Grimke. So he was born a slave in 1850, incredible story, went on to graduate from Princeton. So just that story is amazing in and of itself. Then he became pastor of 15th Street Presbyterian Church here in D.C., where except for a brief stint elsewhere, he would serve for the next 60 years. 60 years as a pastor preaching in one church You'd think that I might get old, right? Not for Grimpy. He said, this is one of my favorite, he said, what a book the Bible is. Where in all the world's literature will you find such a storehouse of knowledge and wisdom? Where will you find such sublime ideas about God, such noble standards of living? Open it up anywhere and how the light flashes in upon us from another source. Take the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the warnings and exhortations found in the Gospels and Epistles, and above all, the glorious character and life of Jesus Christ. And yet, how often we find men in our pulpits searching heaven and earth for something new to preach about, while this treasure house of wisdom and knowledge of the things necessary to salvation is neglected, passed by, and overlooked. Oh, do not, we will not neglect, pass by, or overlook this book. So our plan is to start this journey tomorrow or today if you want, but there's six days a week in this plan, a chapter or two a day. If you were to go to the church website right now, mcleanbible.org, on that front page right in the middle, you'll see a link to Bible reading plan. That will take you to where you can download this plan and have all sorts of resources. There's daily three to five minute podcast called Pray the Word that corresponds with a verse from each day's reading. That'll start tomorrow. There are resources for small groups and families 
to discuss what you're reading. So you can do that around the table. Or do it when you gather together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Resources to help you individually journal through what you're reading in the Word. And then our plan, starting today, is to spend each Sunday either thinking through what we're going to be reading that coming week or what we've just read the previous week. So we'll start our time each Sunday, Lord willing, much like we did when we were memorizing 1 John 1 together in the fall, saying a verse that together, hopefully by memory, we have learned that week. So all that's on the website. It's also on the Beyond Sundays app. So if you have the Beyond Sundays app or you can download Beyond Sundays and you can subscribe to the track for 2019 Bible reading plan, it'll just be fed to your device. So the point of all of this is not just to help you know the story of scripture. The point is to help you see how this story has the power to transform your story. We talked about this last week, how this story has the power to enable you to know and love and enjoy life as God created you to live, which I'm guessing everybody wants to know and love and enjoy life. We talked about last week, that won't happen if we just read some chapters and check off some boxes on a spiritual to-do list. That's not the point. We talked about how we need to be, read the Bible reflectively and experience all that God has for us in it. So last week, I introduced you to an acrostic called MAPS, M-A-P-S, that is a guide for getting from reading the Bible to actually experiencing intimacy with God, enjoyment of life. So what I wanna do today is I wanna take that acrostic and use it when it comes to what we're going to be reading in Genesis this week. So if you pull out the notes that hopefully you received when you came in today, so there's a bulletin on the back, there's some notes that'll guide our time in the Word. You'll see a title at the top there, The Questions of Life and the Story of Scripture. And then you'll see M-A-P-S in bold there, Meditate, Memorize, Apply, Pray, and Share. So what I wanna do is I wanna ask what I would say are the most fundamental questions in all of life, I want us to reflect, to meditate on how those questions are answered in the opening chapters of the Bible that we're going to be reading. At the same time, I want to introduce you to this verse that we're going to memorize together this week that sums up the answers to these questions. And then I want us to think about how the answers to these questions fundamentally change the way we live and work, the way we approach singleness, marriage, family, the way we approach business, future, finances, plans and dreams, all of life. Now, obviously we're not gonna read all 11 chapters of Genesis together today that are, you see at the top, but I do wanna start by reading chapter one together. So I want us to see how the Bible begins and in the process, you'll have half of the reading for day one accomplished in the next couple of minutes. Not that we're checking off boxes, but here we go. Actually, let's, let's pray before we read. God, we praise you for your word, for speaking to us, and for your promise by your spirit to help us understand it and apply it to our lives. So we pray, speak to us right now. With anticipation, we pray, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We pray that the next few minutes would just be a supernatural encounter with you. You know what's going on in every one of our lives and families and work, all across this room, all across other campuses. 
So we pray that you would take your word and speak directly to our hearts through it. Right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits bearing, tr fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse, in the, in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God who created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply the earth and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day.
Okay, so let's meditate, which remember means to reflect. So let's ask questions about what's happening in what we just read in God's word, what God is teaching us about himself, about us, about Jesus, about what it means to follow him. So let's ask the first question, who is God? And based on what we just read in this chapter, as well as the chapters that follow that we'll read this week, and I'll make some different references to now, we see, this is summary, God is the supreme creator, sovereign king, righteous judge, and merciful savior of the world. So let's take those one by one. God is the supreme creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The opening verse of the Bible is a breathtaking declaration that all things begin with God, but God had no beginning. He was in the beginning. He was and is and always has been and always will be, which is different from everything else in the universe. All the stars and all the sky, all the oceans and all the galaxies, all the vast expanse, they all had a beginning. There was a time when they were not and God created them. This is huge. I don't have to tell you that we live in a culture that says there is no God and we were not created. So let's just quickly unpack those two ideas. So first, you really can't say definitively that there is no God. Like That would be an unsustainable negation. Think about it. If you say something is not there, you have to have searched out all possibilities that it might be there. So if I were to say something is not in the room where I'm standing right now, I would have to have searched all this room to see if it is there. So in the case of God, to say that God is not there is to say you've searched all knowledge to see if God is there. And if you've searched all knowledge, then that means you have all knowledge. And by definition, that makes you God. So you would deny your own divinity with your own statement that there is no God. Some of you will catch that at lunch. Just go back and listen to it. <laughs> the point is, all of us at least have to admit the possibility that there is a God who exists. Now, someone might say at this point that God didn't create us. A big bang did. We're all part of a process that began billions of years ago, and we're not created beings. So let's think about that one briefly. Even if we assume, even if we assume there was a time when however many years ago, certain molecules came together in a big bang, it would still beg the question, right? Where did those molecules come from? They had to come from somewhere. They just come from nowhere. Just appear. There's an old saying that out of nothing, nothing comes. So if I have in my hands a cup of nothing, what can you get from it? You can get nothing. Aristotle said nothing is what rocks dream about. So in order to even have particles that come together to make a big bang, those particles had to come from somewhere. So you either have to believe that some natural particles have eternally existed or a supernatural God has eternally existed, the creator of all things. This is where I love what Robert Zastro said. He was one time director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He's talking about Genesis astronomically, scientifically. He said the details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They've always believed the word of the Bible, but we scientists did not expect to find evidence for an abrupt beginning because we have had until recently such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effects backward in time. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. 
For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. God is the beginning. He is the supreme creator of all things, which means, so keep following this, that means God is distinct from creation and he rules over it, which leads right in the next reality we see here. God is the sovereign king, meaning he exercises authority and reign over creation. There is nothing, absolutely nothing going on in Genesis 1 that is outside of his control. And there's nothing that happens in Genesis 3 when sin enters the world that is ultimately outside of his control. The author of creation has authority over creation, which leads to the reality that he is the righteous judge. In Genesis 2, we read about how God establishes laws that govern creation. You just jump down to Genesis 2:16, where the Bible says, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God establishing his law, giving commandments that creation is responsible for heeding. In Genesis chapter 3, man and woman do not heed his commands. They disobey and disregard them, and they experience God's judgment. So here in the Bible, in the very beginning, we are confronted with the reality that God is the righteous judge with the reality that God will judge every single person in this room and every single person in the world. Every single one of us will one day stand before God as judge and he will be just. Which makes us all the more thankful when we realize, praise God, that he is also the merciful savior God is not a creator or judge who is indifferent to us. God loves us and desires our good, whether it's in the initial creation of man in Genesis 2 before the fall or the grace of God toward man after the fall in Genesis 3 through 11. God is a merciful savior. Now, before we talk more about God in relationship to us, let's ask the second question. How did the world come to be? And the answer we see from the beginning of the Bible is that the world was fashioned by the word of God and is sustained by the power of God as a display of the goodness of God. So much there. It's interesting, as you read through Genesis 1 and 2, what you'll notice is that we basically have two creation accounts in the book of Genesis. So Genesis 1 describes creation mainly in terms of the universe and all of its various elements. Then in Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, you have an account of creation that focuses specifically on people and our relationship with God. So what do we learn about creation when you put all this together? We learn that creation was fashioned by the word of God. So chapter one, verse three, and God said, let there be light and there was light. Creation starts with the word of God. All he does is speak and it is. And you see this phrase over and over and over again. Whenever you see a phrase repeated in the Bible as you're reading through it, sit up and take notice. So just underline this maybe in your Bible. Maybe you highlight it. In verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. 
Verse 26, then God said, everything in creation is brought into being by the word of God. He speaks and it is. And it's sustained by the power of God. So see the omnipotence of God all over the place. Here the stars are held in their place by the power of God. The oceans stop where they do by the power of God. The sun and moon exist as they do according to the power of God. The plants grow, the animals eat by the power of God. There are no self-sustaining laws in the universe. Everything here is God-sustained. This is not natural selection at work. This is supernatural provision at work. If God were to withdraw his power and his word for a split second, the universe and all that is in it, including you and me, would cease to exist in that same split second. All the order in all the universe, every single detail, you and I learn in science class about how plants grow, how climate changes, how bodies work, all of it is because of the sustaining power of God. And all of it is evidence of the goodness of God. Just look across a snow-covered metro DC and see the beauty of God reflected in creation. Again, this is something we see over and over again. You might underline or highlight this phrase repeated. Verse 10, God looked at all that he made and what does it say? God saw that it was good. In verse 12, God saw that it was good. In verse 18, God saw that it was good. Verse 21, And God saw that it was good. Verse 25, and God saw that it was good. Then verse 31 changes up a little bit. God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So this is not some standard of goodness apart from God. This is goodness that flows from the very goodness of God. The harmony, beauty, order, loveliness here in Genesis 1 are all a reflection of the goodness of God, including you. And me. So let's ask the question, who are we? And this is our memory verse this week. I put it at the top of your notes. So let's read it out loud together here at all of our campuses all at once. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. Let's say it out loud. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Oh, memorize this verse. And as you do, meditate, reflect on what God is saying. Like we are men and women wonderfully made in God's image so that we might know and enjoy God as we obey God and spread his glory in the world. So much there, see it. You are wonderfully made in the image of God. This is the verbiage we see. You might underline this. Again, repeated. In verse 27 we see it, which we just read. In verse 26, right before this, God made man in his own image. And then if you turn over to Genesis chapter nine, verse six, you'll read God made man in his own image. So what does that mean? It means that in a unique way, apart from everything else in all of creation. Just just think of the beauty and the majesty of the Grand Canyon. A stunning sunrise over the ocean or a, a sitting lion or a soaring eagle in a far, far greater way. You, right where you are sitting right now, you are a reflection of the beauty of God. The wonder of God. 
image of God. Kind of like when somebody looks at my six-year-old son and says, he's your spitting image. The reality is you and I are a reflection of God. And notice both male and female here. So the Bible is speaking from the very beginning about the beauty of gender against absolutely any sense of gender superiority or domination of one gender over another. The Bible is establishing the beauty of both male and female from the very beginning in a way that is obviously questioned across our culture today. So we hear from God in his word, man, woman, boy, girl, in this room at other campuses, believe that God created you beautifully with dignity, inherent dignity as an image bearer of almighty God as a man or a woman. You're a unique awesome, wonderful reflection of him so that you might know and enjoy him. Do you see this? From the very beginning of our creation, what's the first word in Genesis 1:28? God blessed them and God said to them, God spoke to them. Do you see this? You and I have been created to enjoy the blessing of God in personal communion with God, like God speaking to us, us speaking to God. This is unlike anything else in all creation. Mountain can't, mountains can't do this. Oceans don't talk. Animals, birds, sea creatures. I know people do this. People speak to God. God speaks to them, which is the whole picture we see in Genesis 2. Man and woman, as you read that account, just enjoying pure, delightful, enjoyable, bountiful, full, free blessing from the Creator poured out on His unique creation. And what did God say to them? Chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my glory. We've been created to know and enjoy God as we obey his word and spread his glory in the world. See the picture of man and woman from the beginning of the Bible. They're knowing and enjoying God. They're knowing and enjoying one another in perfect harmony with the world. Don't you long for Genesis 1 and 2? We long for it because it's not our experience. We experience conflict with God and conflict with each other and conflict with the world. Our bodies, our lives in the world, which leads to the question, what is wrong with the world? And the answer comes in Genesis 3. Let's read it together, just the first part. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And we studied this together back in December so we won't go as deep here. But here's a summary of what is wrong with the world established at the beginning of the Bible. What's wrong with the world 
is that we have all sinned against God by rejecting his word, his authority, and his love, causing broken relationships with God, each other, and the world, and culminating in death, eventual physical death, and eternal spiritual death. So let's unpack this step by step. What's wrong with the world is that we have all sinned against God. What does that mean? It means we have rejected God's word. This looks different in each one of our lives. But we have all decided at some point and many points, just what Adam and Eve decided here, that our ways are better than God's. We've rejected his word and rejected his authority over our lives. You think about it here in Genesis, God speaks to all creation, to mountains, to planets, to oceans, to clouds, and all creation responds in immediate obedience to his bidding until you get to man and woman and you and I have the audacity to look at God in the face and say no. And in this we reject God's love. We looked at this in December when we studied this passage, Adam and Eve here, doubting the goodness of God. They believe they know better than God what is best for them, that God doesn't want what is best for them. So they disobey him, doubt his love for them. And the same is true for every single one of us. We actually think we know better than God what is best for our lives. And the very God who created us, we think our laws for marriage and family are better. We think our approach to money and finances and success is better. We think our ways of life and work are better, better than God's. So we reject his word, his authority, and his love. And the result is broken relationships, first and foremost with God, which is what happens Right after this in verses eight and following, man and woman used to rejoice in the presence of God. Now they're hiding from God. For the first time they experienced guilt and shame and fear before God. Ultimately separation from God. Man and woman's relationship with God broken. And man and woman's relationship with one another broken. Marriage, the most intimate of all human relationships, now marked by strife, and conflict and competition. In some ways, separation affecting all human relationships that are now marked by this quest for power, this prideful pursuit of advantage over one another that leads to anger and hate and gossip and division and racism and injustice, oppression, slavery, war, on and on and on and on. None of this a part of God's design. Just four chapters into the Bible, a man murders his brother. And then it's not just personal relationships, but our relationship with the world is broken. A perfect creation soon witnesses a flood in what we will read in Genesis chapter six that wipes out almost everyone and everything on the earth, only to be followed in history by natural decay and disaster, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, and on and on and on, all of which culminate in the ultimate effect of sin, death. 
eventual physical death. We realize in Genesis 2 and 3 that physical death was not God's design. God said, if you eat of this tree, if you sin, you will surely die. So the effect of sin is clear. As you get to chapter 5 in Genesis this week, just notice how almost every paragraph ends with the same phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's not the way God designed it to be. And more severe than even physical death is the reality that if man or woman physically dies in a state of separation from God, then the result is eternal spiritual death. Please, please, please do not miss how serious this picture is in the beginning of the Bible. Because the same serpent that was lying in Genesis 3 is lying to people all across this room and other campuses right now. You will not surely die right now trying to convince you and me that there will not be eternal consequences for sin against God. That we're all okay. When we die, we'll just go wandering off into a happy hunting ground. At the end of a long black tunnel, there will be a bright light and we'll go to some wonderful happy place. Or maybe when we die, we'll just go out of existence. It's not true. We are all guilty sinners. God is a righteous judge and the just payment for our sin is eventual physical death and eternal spiritual death. God, help us in a world of day-to-day trivialities to feel the eternal weight of this. Like, just stop for a minute amidst the busyness of your life and open your eyes to eternity before you, before a holy God as a sinner. Your sin, my sin, is eternally serious before God. Which leads to the last question, what is our hope in this world? Is there any hope in a world of broken relationships with God, with one another, and the world? And before we answer this, I think it's helpful to at least pause for a minute and realize that atheistic, I would argue agnostic, ultimately secular, naturalistic answers to this question are utterly hopeless. I think about Richard Dawkins, noteworthy atheist, who said this, and he was commenting on how There's no creator who made us. We're all just a natural product of our DNA and we live according to it and then we die. There's no bigger picture. So listen to this quote. He said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are gonna get hurt, other people are gonna get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we are all dancing to its music. Can you imagine telling the victims of Auschwitz, sorry, Hitler and all these Nazi soldiers are just dancing to their DNA. They are neither evil nor good. It's all a part of blind, pitiless indifference that neither knows nor cares. And you're just unlucky. Or to make it more personal, amidst the hurt and pain you've experienced in your life, in your family, that in the end, you really don't have any hope of justice or redemption or healing. You either get hurt or you get lucky and then you die. That's life and there's no rhyme or reason in it. That is a hollow worldview. I urge you, don't bank your life on it. 
Or think about the religions of the world that almost universally say in different ways, your hope is in getting better and doing enough and doing enough good, doing enough kind, doing enough to make you worthy. If you work hard enough at the right things, then you have hope, but you're never really sure how much enough is. And I want you to see from the beginning of the Bible a far, far greater hope than anything else you will ever hear in this world. A much, much surer hope than anything this world will offer you. A glorious hope. So follow this. We're going to take it one phrase at a time. Our only hope in this world is a redeemer who will conquer sin and death. Genesis 3.15, we study this in December in the middle of the saddest chapter in the Bible. God gives a promise of one who would come born of a woman who would have his heel bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, the first promise of a redeemer. What's a redeemer? A redeemer is one who comes to make things new. A rescuer, a liberator who comes to set people free from the curse of sin and death. And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is the redeemer. He came, he lived a perfect life, totally sinless. He conquered sin completely. And then though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die to pay the price for your sin and my sin. Jesus came to die the death we deserve to die for our sin in our place. And the good news keeps getting better better because he didn't stay dead for long. Jesus rose from the grave in victory over death. Our only hope in this world is a redeemer who will conquer sin and death, reconcile us to God. The central message of the entire Bible from the very beginning is that all who trust In this Redeemer, Jesus, all who turn from their sin and trust Jesus to save them from their sin as Lord of their lives, you will be forgiven of all your sin. Not, not, not based on what you can do, how good enough you can be. Jesus has already done what is good enough based on what he has done for you. So you put your trust in Jesus and you will be reconciled to God, restored to a relationship with God like you were originally designed to have, complete with a new heart. Follow this. Our only hope is a redeemer who will conquer sin and death, reconcile us to God and give us new hearts. The story of Genesis, the story of scripture is not that we need to be recycled and made better. The story of the Bible is that we need to be redeemed and made new. Jesus did not die to make us better. He died to make us new. The Bible is not a self-improvement plan. It is a life-transforming promise that when we trust in Jesus, God will give us new desires, new hearts that want his word, that want his authority and experience his love. You can be made entirely new through Jesus. And not just you, our only hope in this world is a redeemer who will conquer sin and death, reconcile us to God, give us new hearts and restore God's creation. Oh, see it. Praise God. In Genesis 3, God does not end the story with a Thanos snap. God promises there's coming a day when Genesis 1 and 2 will be restored. So here's a spoiler alert. I'm going to go ahead and tell you how the Bible ends. There's coming a day when sin and suffering will be no more, when pain and hurt and sorrow will be no more, when disease and death will be no more, and all who've trusted in the Redeemer will be fully restored to God, fully restored to one another, and this world fully restored to the harmony and beauty for which it was originally designed. See it, our only hope in this world is a redeemer who will conquer sin and death, reconcile us to God, give us new hearts, and restore God's creation. In a word, our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope 
is Jesus. Which means that over the next 10 months, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, the center of the story will always be Jesus. One of my favorite children's Bible storybooks that we've used with our kids is titled The Jesus Storybook Bible. And the subtitle says, Every Story Whispers His Name. And I just want you to hear it. Like day after day and week after week, I want you to hear his name whispered over and over and over again in the next 10 months in such a way that you are set free from sin. In such a way that you are set free from the fear of death or anything else in this world. You are set free by hope in Jesus, a hope that far surpasses anything this world can offer you in a way that you are set free from monotonous, casual, motion, routine religion to experience the height and depth and length and width and wonder of intimacy with Jesus, communion with God in every day of your life and trust in God with everything in your life. As you read the story of scripture, I long for you more and more every day and everything to cling to the hope and the peace and the joy and the life that are found in Jesus. And the process to live, to make his hope known in the world. Right around us here in DC, we want more and more and more people to know the hope that's found in Jesus. It's why we make disciples, it's why we multiply churches here in D.C. and far from D.C. I got an email this last week from a brother who we started working with as a church, started working in Yemen in the middle of darkness and war there. Remember, you're giving over and above this last December already. We're providing food to our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're, they're sharing that with unbelievers around them, opening doors for the spread of gospel hope in Yemen. We're training pastors and leaders there. I just got word this last week, six new believers have been baptized. Like we have a hope to share in our hurting world. So here's the deal. We meditate and we memorize. So let's memorize Genesis 127 this week. Do this individually with friends, with your family. But we don't stop there. We apply, pray, and share. Like this book is not just, okay, we listen to it and kind of move on with our lives. This book totally transforms our lives. So what I want to do right now, much like we've done in recent weeks, is I just want to, before we do anything else, before you move on with the rest of your day or even we move on with anything else in this service, I just want to pause. God has spoken, I pray, through his word. I want to pause just for a couple minutes and encourage you right where you're sitting right now to identify one, two, three ways these truths cause you, right where you are, to think, desire, act differently this week. When we're talking about head, heart, hands, how does the word change the way Think, desire, act. How did these truths lead you to P-R-A-Y, that acrostic, praise God, repent of sin, ask God for certain requests, yield to God in your life. And then to think, who can you discuss or share these truths with this week? We talked about this last week. This word is not intended to stop with you. It's intended to spread through you. So I want to invite you just right now, we're going to take just a couple minutes before we close this time in the word, I want to invite you to write down just your initial thoughts along these lines. Maybe they're in your notes or on some device you have, just whatever it is, just reflect for a moment. Just spend time between you and God. He, I pray, has spoken. 
I just want to give you an opportunity to respond. And as you start writing, I, I want to say especially to anyone who is not a follower of Jesus. You came in here and you'd say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not following Jesus in my life. I just want to encourage you. God has brought you here to hear this story. He loves you. He has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. And right now, while others are reflecting in different ways, you can pray to God. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Say, I'm gonna, I trust in Jesus. Save me from my sins. Restore me to relationship with you. And God will answer that prayer like right now in this holy moment. Here at other campuses, I urge you. Do I was talking with one woman last week who trusted in Christ, heard the message of the Bible and said, I need to be saved from my sins. Do that now. I invite you to do that now. So let me invite you just to reflect, to pray for a couple minutes and then, then I'll close us. You continue writing as long as you need to. I'm just going to pray for us. God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for speaking to us. Praise you that we don't have to fumble around in the darkness trying to figure out answers to the most foundational questions in life. We praise you for answering them from the very beginning of your word, for speaking to us and speaking to us even in a fresh way right now. So God, we pray, bring life through your word. Pray that even right now here at other campuses, you'd bring spiritual life to some, many for the first time. And to all of us, we want to experience more and more and more the life you've created us to live peace, joy, a hope that are found in Jesus. Jesus, we praise you as the hero of the Bible, the center of the story of all history, and we want you to be the center of the story of our lives. So conform us more to the, your image as we read your word, and we pray. God, I pray. and pray all morning, all week. God, please, please, please cause us as a, ch as a church to love Jesus more as a result of the next 10 months to look more like Jesus as a result of the next 10 months. God, please, through your word, do it. Move in power among us, we pray. Through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. We invite you to download the free discussion questions that accompany today's sermon or browse thousands of other sermons on our website at Radical.net. And thank you to all of you who have subscribed, rated, and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. We appreciate that so much. It helps us to get this resource out to more and more people who are looking for gospel-rich content. So thank you. And don't forget, Secret Church 19 registration is open. We hope you join us for this important one-night event with David Platt on April 26th. Whether you join us in person in Washington, D.C. at McLean Bible Church or the tens of thousands literally around the world through the live simulcast experience. It's going to be an unforgettable night that we hope you don't miss. So again, you can learn more and sign up at secretchurch.org. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us at Radical.net.